talks about passion between the women and the men. Chris Dyer and his creative friends, darling. Ooh, 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 ooh. Hi. Welcome back to Chris Dyer's Creative Friends, the super fun podcast interview YouTube show that me, your artist friend Chris Dyer, does with all his wonderful friends he meets on the road. So today I'm in Eugene, Oregon. I'm working on a project with my guest, who's Marcel Braun, and he is a legendary glass blower and the head of the Starship Collective Rebel Alliance. So we're going to have a very interesting conversation. How are you doing, Marcel? I'm doing good. How are you? Fantastic. Thanks awesome. for having me over uh, your land and uh, giving me my own cabin to sleep at. And yeah, working on this project with me. Thank you. Thank yeah. You. Yeah, it's great to have you here. We're super stoked. Uh, watching you work has been amazing. And, uh, Thanks, you man. Know. You guys yeah. are doing most of the work, but I'm happy to do a mural for you. Yeah, it looks beautiful. I am so excited about it. Yeah, so, so stoked. Well, it was a big, nice wall. It's uh, metallic, so it's very hot. Uh -huh. And it's, uh, it's hot days, but it's summer, so. Yeah, That's you're it. earning it today. Right, um, like I sweat today. outside during the day, and you sweat inside during the night. Yep, pretty much. <laughs> Sick. So are you from uh, Eugene originally? Yeah, uh, no, I was born in uh, Minnesota, and then my parents kind of moved over to Colorado, and then to Oregon. I got to Oregon in like eighth grade, though. So okay, uh, pretty much from Oregon, but not necessarily Eugene. Mm-hmm. Um, well, how is it here? It's beautiful. You know, pretty tolerant. Lots of people that are easygoing and you know looking for looking for peace in life. Mm -hmm. So you know that makes that makes for good vibes. I feel like. Nice. Uh, is it like the, did the vibe change at all once uh, weed got legalized? You know, Eugene has been like a weed destination for as long as weed's been like a nearly mainstream thing. Like you ask people where the best weed in the country is that really know and it's like in Eugene. So, you know, and to put it in perspective, when when Oregon legalized in the first day the dispensaries were allowed to sell, we bought more weed in Oregon than Colorado did in like the first week. Wow. You know, and so people were like, hungry for that legal weed. Or it was even just everyone so in the culture, it was just the novelty of going to the store and buying it. Mm -hmm. And because now you could. Right. Because everyone yeah. already is like puffing in Oregon. I mean, that's what I was kind of getting at when I'm like, everyone's easy going. I mean, it's like mm -hmm. everyone puffs here. You nice. know, it makes things nice. And this is the home of the Merry Pranksters too, right? Right up the road. Oh yeah, that's where their, their farm is? Yep. Nice. Yeah, it's on this road, on that, this highway. That's the Ken Casey farm? Yep. Nice. I, I, I painted there back in uh, 2015, perhaps. I painted the further bus. Uh, was a oh, big nice. honor. And, uh, uh, and before that, I was at the Wow Hall. You painted the new further bus? Yeah, like just oh, a little wow. piece on it. Not the okay. whole thing, but uh, Zen Casey, who does my blotter prints, was like, hey, Chris, you're in town. Come and paint the further bus. And I was like, all right, I'm going there. Okay. And I painted at a uh, 420 event 
at the Wow Hall. It was like a Grateful Dead cover band, but I didn't finish. So the next day it's like, oh, come to the farm. And it was in the garage where it's parked to the next to the old school further bus. Uh-huh. And I don't usually do acid, but that day I did. And uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a good experience. Yeah. So that's my memories of Oregon, of wow. Eugene specifically. Cool. Re- re- really like a very like hippie-ish uh, kind of town. Uh, so do you remember or, you know, how we met or how we got connected? Uh, wasn't it our friend Oak? Right. Yeah. So my friend Oak, uh, who's a glass blower from the, you know, Quebec area, he's not even in Montreal, but he was guest from the podcast number 15. Uh, he taught me about your coins and about the Starship Collective. And I was like, wow, that sounds like a very cool project. And then our friend John Ohia, who is here behind the technical spots, shout outs, John. Um, he put us in touch. And, uh-huh. and now together we're uh, doing this project. Awesome. Tell me a little about this project. Thanks, John. Uh, the Project 33, like the coin project? Yeah. Or, uh, I, that's what the coin project's called specifically? Yep. We call it Project 33, and uh, it's uh, to project the culture of 33, uh, you know, and kind of take that back from other people. Uh, and 33 is also corresponds with the COE of glass. So it's the... What's COE? the coefficient of expansion so it describes the shape change between when the material is cold and when the material is hot okay so uh the the coefficient is roughly 33 it's like 32.7 something something and mm-hmm. uh, so uh years ago i started rounding it up to 33 <clears throat> and uh because it was just a fun number and uh so you know, what the projection is about is, you know, designing a business and a function that operates for the highest purposes of the planet and the people and the society as a cooperative type of business arrangement rather than like a capitalist thing where it's considered competitive and you're in competition for scarce resources and there's all these ideas about like friendly competition and stuff. And it's like, you know, these are all kind of like toxic ideas as far as providing a positive experience for everyone on the planet, you know, and Mm -hmm. it's abundance for all. Exactly. And it's a lot more functional if people create their structures and their business structures based on the uh, suitability for the planet, then for the culture, then for the extended family, then the close family, then the person's self, mm-hmm. you know, so that, that, that aligns all of the family groups in, in line with each other and with the best interests of the planet versus the capitalism where you're trying to create a pyramid with yourself at the top and the widest, most stable base uh, to support you is like, it just, the way the numbers work, when you put them to the actions, it doesn't function to the highest interest of like the common person, mm-hmm. you know? And uh, so that's what we try and do as a organization. You know, we're taking what we have, the resources that we're able to build, and we're sharing them as much as possible. So in my case, the main resource I have and have contributed over my 20 years in glass is process design and equipment and stuff like that. So having 
having an open studio, which is like, this studio is state of the art. There's things going on here that aren't happening anywhere else in the country. So having that studio open and being documented where people can just kind of come here and participate, which allows them to like firsthand learn and experience and take away that which they would need to uh, do this sort of activity on their own. And that's really what we're about is like, <clears throat> you know, being as a, as cooperate, you know, when people help us, we try and help them. And the very function of what we do is meant to support the community in the certain sense of, you know, here's new processes, different mm -hmm. ways of approaching the material. Well, that's a beautiful intention. And thanks for including me in it. Uh, I don't know if I'm the first artist that's collaborating on this coin or, or not, but it's a you know, blessing to come here, share my art and see you guys' magic turning my art into glass. And, you know, I'm still learning as we go. We still got a few more days and I'll be like filming the whole process and putting it as B-roll on this show so that the guests can see it, those who are seeing it through YouTube. Um, so how do you get into glass? Like you say, you were doing it for 20 years. Like what, what's been your journey through glass? So I was like uh, kind of when my parents moved me from Colorado to Oregon, I had been playing hockey and just had a sort of a different sort of a life. And there's no ice in Oregon. Mm -hmm. So uh, it was just sort of a like total life change. And, you know, I found myself, uh, you know, meeting a bunch of you know, basically street kids and stuff like that and getting interested in the counterculture and the Oregon Country Fair is the thing down here and the pranksters are definitely like out and about like hanging out. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that's kind of what what drew me into the situation. I was like, you know, experimenting with psychedelics and stuff like that. And uh, one of the one of the places we used to um, uh, get stuff from was in Eugene and they blew glass there and uh, actually my friend my friend Clinton and uh, this other guy uh, Eric and this uh, guy Red all were blowing glass there in this like crazy crazy like back of Eugene like uh, I forget what it used what it's called back there but it's all gravel roads with potholes that would swallow a car and you know, definitely, uh, you know, you don't some, see cops back there very often. Okay, some backcountry situation. Yeah, exactly, but right in town. So it's just kind of this weird little part of Eugene, uh, especially at that time. I have no idea what it's, what it's like now, but the, it's always been a little rough back there. And so it's crazy, you know, and I was young, so it made an impression on me. Like, I was the most... Uh, like one of the rougher situations I've ever seen at that point too. So, which is hilarious because it's freaking Eugene, Oregon. But I was like 17 years old, mm -hmm. 16 years old, 17, 17. What, what did you start glass blowing? Like pipes and bongs or? Yeah. And what, what have you done? Like, it seems like every glass blower like has their thing. Like this person does, uh, you know, uh, acid eater and this person does honeybees and this person does uh, praying goddess. Like, do you have like a thing that's like your thing or do you do a lot of things? 
my thing is equipment and process and honoring the classics. So I like study how glass has been made for like the last couple thousand years and cherry pick the best stuff out of that and then redo redo the equipment with modern material science and modern glass. And that's essentially my thing is I use uh, borosilicate, which is 50 years old as a material. And uh, it's like a lot more durable. So like the objects will last tens of thousands of years instead of thousands of years. And they're um, just more resistant to chemicals. It can sit in the sun for longer without breaking down and all that kind of stuff. Cool. So like, I, I, from my observation, that's kind of like, you, I don't know if you're like the main man or the master of this, but it seems like inventing machines to take the technique further or improve it, it's kind of like your thing. Like you invent machines. Uh, you were telling me the other day you weren't trying to buy like a metal cutter to make more machines or like, I don't even really understand when you explain it to me too much because <laughs> it's complicated and it's yeah. not my, my art. But uh, yeah, tell me a little bit about it. Yeah, I mean, it's like, it's exactly that. I mean, my, one of the things that I do is I engineer solutions for my processes. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's like these over here are different presses and I've been working with this level of technology for at least a dozen years, 20 years, really, since the beginning. It was like, build, you know, glasses are really like hands-on. You have to like build a bench with fireproof surface and ventilation. So like just to do the most basic work, you have to have some kind of inkling of construction or trades or pay a lot of money for it. Um, and I was always the build a studio, practice, learn. Like I love being able to build things that I imagine and then have it become reality. And so being an artist, a creator, Glass is great. The studio is a huge part of my ability to express and my, uh, and my expression itself comes from sorting out these, these solutions, you know. So like this machine behind me here is... Uh, the glory hole? The glory hole, yep. And that's a, uh, uh, that's a recuperated burner a friend of mine designed. And this is the like second burn, second glory hole it's run on, but it essentially, the silver stack is the air intake and the smaller one coming out is the exhaust. So it uses the exhaust to reheat the air before it goes into the chamber to make it get hotter and use less energy. Would you say that's like your crown jewel of the inventions you've done or wh which is the machine you would be the most proud of? Um, the glory hole, which uh, the, the first glory hole I built was about 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so it's changed a lot of things just in the sense of I've had it and had the time to use it and everything kind of revolves around it. So uh, like that right there is a torch, which is a typical, that's like a state of the art, super capable, heavy duty torch. Mm -hmm. goes about as big as it gets. I mean, there's slightly larger torches, but... Uh, it looks straight out of Star Wars. <laughs> right. It's, that thing is a serious, uh, serious professional's tool. And, then, uh, and that's what most people would use to do borosilicate artwork. So the glory hole on the other side there, that thing 
anything that fits in that chamber will reach 3,000 degrees in like four or five minutes. Crazy. Uh, whereas the torch, it's just a much smaller area of heat uh, because it's, uh, it's only what's burning and then it dissipates into the atmosphere right away, whereas the, the glory hole captures the heat. And so when you put something in there, there's the radiant heat from the whole chamber and the liner. So you're going inside of a 2,000 pound vessel that's 3,000 degrees with your thing. And it, it's a gentler heat too. So it's, it's opened the door for me and the team to practice offhand glass blowing with borosilicate for 15 years now and develop all kinds of things around that. Uh, you know, the processes are really what, what it ends up being. You know, we got the glory hole and we got the glory hole working. So that essentially made it to where we had the attention of the glass blowers of the world because the question had always been, can you blow borosilicate? And it's not terribly difficult to melt it in a furnace, but to tool it and use the bench in the glory hole, you have to have a really hot reheating chamber. And so once I had that, it opens the door to actually build something, you know, because the tools are one thing, but to, to know how to use the tools is a whole nother level of, mm. you know, and, and that's, that's what I'm kind of trying to bring forward here is the idea that it took 15 years of having the tools to even figure out what to do with it right. that is well suited to it and to build the skill set necessary to be able to do it you know i mean you can bring the 20-year glass blower in here with the torch and they have to kind of start from ground zero to learn the furnace and the glory hole on the bench mm -hmm. uh, so that you're bringing brand new tools so people couldn't just like either buy one of these machines off you or imitate it and just go on their way and do it so easy because they would still need like a decade to even figure out how to use it Yes. But you would be open to sharing it or, or teaching? Like I am. I mean, uh, anyone that is really interested enough to spend the time to engage with this studio is, you know, it's available. Mm -hmm. You know, like uh, we do a tremendous amount of the work here with volunteers to specifically make sure that that information is going out in the world, you mm -hmm. know, like. It's, it's a community, right? It's a community. And the people that come here are doing really hard work. Uh, it's not easy to be here uh, for a long time. And, but, Why? Because we work. We work hard. Because we work hard. You burn your fingers sometimes? You burn your fingies, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be afraid to be surrounded by such high... Uh, flames and temperature like left and right even walking around here as a dorky artist i'm just like oh i hope nothing burns me as i walk around yeah. it's good you have to be aware around here i mean there's a giant flame blasting out of two sides of that appliance behind the camera and right uh you know the hot furnaces and all yeah, john's of like right next to like a pile of like you know he's sweating it up i think he's gonna like disappear by the end of this right. <laughs> interview <laughs> he's gonna sweat away it's like 100 degrees out and you're between two 2300 degree furnaces right like it's like it's a good way to always do your detox as you work like yeah it's a good way to lose weight as you drop that job. water yeah yeah um so tell me I want to I ask you two questions in one. 
tell me about the spaceship collective and tell me what does the phrase that you use a spaceship in your garage starship in every garage a starship in every garage tell me so, about that the starship collective uh like i was talking about is modeling like a planet first abundance based economics and uh so to the extent that we're able to that's what we that's what we do it's got hospitality and you know seeing fellow people seeking knowledge about glass as travelers and then being that type of oasis where when you reach this place the knowledge is flowing like water in the oasis you know and you know and part of making the oasis remain an oasis is everyone puts their energy into it and and that's how it moves forward um so that's the that's the starship collective and um the second part of it was the phrase the phrase a starship in every garage so the idea behind a starship in every garage is that uh your activated highest purpose merged with your soul energy is the starship activation. Mhm. Mm so your body would be the the vessel or the garage mm -hmm. and the starship is like when the when the garage is functioning appropriately so that the starship can be activated. That's that is embodying a starship in every garage. Cool, kind of like a Merkaba star tetrahedron activation within the human vessel, which is just a common garage for the soul. Yes, it's, it's a it's a metaphor, but you guys are doing it as as a collective of creators in this what old barn? What is this thing? Yep, this is an old barn. It was originally built to work on log trucks. Okay, and uh, you know, so you. <laughs> So like a mechanical garage. Yeah, a fern gully maintenance site. Hexus lived here. What's that? Have you ever seen uh Fern Gully? It's this I have kids, right? So the animated cartoon and uh Hexus is the evil spirit that lives in the oil smoke and oh. he's inside the machine that cuts down the forest and everything. So oh. this place being like a log truck maintenance facility was like keeping the keeping the trucks rolling that took the the trees down the trees oh, no. the so it's almost like a reparator of evil spirits and death and you're turning it into something that creates life exactly yeah exactly I well mean, i'm happy to add a little bit of uh, a nice tattoo on the side of it to make yeah. it happy and it really does make it happy i'm i'm stoked on it it's, It's right where I look out the window when I'm making my coffee. So it's just going to be an awesome affirmation of why why everything is here and what I'm doing when I go out there and right. Well, I'm happy to 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 paint that. I made it like a spaceship of course on a garage and you as the captain hand solo kind of like rat pink hot rod style but mixed with like Millennium Falcon and one of those uh you know, little car boogies that uh uh Luke Skywalker had on Planet Tatooine but yep. with a tad of Homer Simpson's you know family car and etc so just you know some pop culture stuff that we like yeah so back good. to the collective like uh you got a lot of talented artists working now currently and maybe in the past would you like to do some shout outs or some mentions of uh people who you work who've come through this Jessica's here every day uh helping that's, out that's making shit happen yep and uh and she's just 
you know, a force, force of nature, her and Phoenix. What's her family name? Boggs. Jessica, Jessica Boggs? Yeah. Nice. Yeah. And, and she's uh, a good uh, glass blower too, no? Yes, yes, she is. She's got her own uh, little bead ladies that she makes. And uh, yeah, and then, uh, you know, Maddie White and Sean Mangan have been uh, side by side on this project uh, since the beginning. And, uh, you know, just especially Sean, he's like every single time he shows up and he brings uh, hospitality every single time, like cookies, drinks, dabs, like mm -hmm. every single time. And that's nice. like almost every time we've worked for the five, six years of the project. So, I mean, that's just like such a dedicated uh, level of support. Good vibes um, are important. Yeah. And then uh, uh, the last uh, year or two, I've had uh, Hinun Padilla here, and uh, he is he's something just dedicated. He's a, he's a kind dude, Hinun. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he is absolutely dedicated to the scene and uh, just, you know, tremendous crusher. Mm -hmm. So, and then... In the very recent past, Carl Taylor has uh, joined the team. He's that's a Grim job. Grim Glass. Grim Glass. Yep, at Grim Glass. And he's been uh, making, uh, making small flameworked components and getting really helping to dial in like small lines in detailed areas. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and of course we did Starry Night, uh, which is you know, a huge achievement. He spent three months making the components and we squished it together in an evening. Wow, it's crazy. And then you also got PJ. PJ over there, yep, he's, he's working over there. Working I mean, as he watches his movies. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so PJ has uh, opened the door almost every time that door has needed to open for the last two, three years, something like that. And that's a tough position to stand in. Like, it's right where John is uh, sweating balls without the glory hole on. And when it's on, you know, you're opening a chamber that's 3,000 degrees inside wow. with an eight-foot flame stuck coming out of it. Damn. Uh, so he's a badass. Yeah, he just sits there and pays attention and, uh, you know, at this point, he's got so much experience, and he's got the global view. He's just like the, the perfect guy. He like taps me on the shoulder. He's like, are you going to start that post mm -hmm. at the right time? And that's always good. It helps really smooth the process out when, mm. you know, sometimes I get distracted by this or that or some difficulty. And then it sort of, once that, once you start missing details, then it starts to create more situations for distraction uh, in the, Fucking that fly damn. loves you. This fly <laughs> is going to go. <laughs> I'm going to fucking get him. <laughs> oh, you got him. <laughs> <laughs> Disgusting. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> hey, we got some live action in this show, man. This is exciting stuff. <laughs> oh, um, man. What about the, the, the Eugene glass blowing community in general? People not from this studio, but like glass blowing in general. Is it like a harmonious scene? Is it competitive? Is it chill? Is it friendly? How, how is the, the, or even Oregon glass scene? How? There are so many people here 
blowing glass that it is every single thing that you just mentioned and alluded to. Okay. It, it runs the whole spectrum. You mm. got, you got like, you know, every different kind of person doing every different kind of thing and doing it. Some people doing it well, some people doing it terrible. And so I'm loving you, some hating you. Oh yeah. I mean, you know, I've been, I've been somebody people talk about. And part of what got me to the point of being able to launch a project that runs on volunteer labor is that I have myself put in an absolute crap ton of volunteer labor into this scene. And there's, right. there's a good community of people that recognize that, and that has given me a platform and the credibility to be like, yeah, I'm going to run my studio on volunteer labor for a few years. And, uh, and we were on year five of that. And now, now uh, the last, this is the second year that we have a really, uh, it's almost like a fishing boat division when we cut and finish the coins. So the, the period where we were really struggling to get it through has kind of passed. And now the process is refined enough that we have actually the ability to create a coin and not be basically going backwards economically after creating the coin. Uh, so, you know, it, it's what that efficiency is what opens the door to do projects with you, you know? Right. Well, the whole intern system, it's a tricky one. Because, like, for example, when I have an intern, I feel a little bit guilty about having somebody work for me for free, but it's not for free because they're learning a lot from my, you know, decades of experience that then they can speed up their process to success. Exactly. By being surrounded by all these G's who like already figure out the, that equation. In my mind, it all has to do with term, you know? So like, basically, it kind of goes along with the idea that everyone has, a, everything has its price. It's sort of like, you know, everyone's got a return on investment that they're willing to do, you know? And it's like, as a glassblower who knows a bunch of shit, if I walk into a studio anywhere, there's like a minimum threshold where if somebody asks me a question about technical process or what to do, I'll absolutely freely give my time mm -hmm. for their betterment just to like better the glass and whatever. Mm -hmm. No problem. And, and that's, the, that's the range that I try and inhabit with the interns that we have here. So like there's no like you have to stay here for this long or if you don't apprentice with me for a year and then you leave, you're a bad person, like, we don't do any of that. It's like, if you feel like coming here and spending your time here and it's making you feel good to be here, then we want you here. And when that changes, we want you to leave. And right. so, mm -hmm. to me, the whole thing with the interns is like, if you're, if people are, you know, in there unhappy, then that's completely different than, you know, we're all here, we're all serving a project that we want to see come to fruition, you know, and, and most of the people that have been helping long term have their own successful economic situations going on. So it's not a immediate financial return type of situation. It's like we want to invest. Exactly. And, else. and you probably invested, you know, a decade just to get your situation enough momentum to reap some rewards and live your abundance. Exactly. And, Two decades. Right. And you've created a community because it's past just this, this barn or, or garage because outside you got like a bunch of chairs, 
and musical instruments and people just show up out of nowhere and while you're working here your friends show up and they're playing a whole like concert back there and you're just chilling it's like oh yeah like my little farm is you know it's for the the nice people to get together yes so that's beautiful so going back to the coins so you're making these beautiful glass coins, which is a whole complicated uh, situation that you've explained to me. You make like a big cake and then it shrinks and that makes an element that then you make another big cake and then you shrink it and you pull it and you slice it and you end up with this really detailed little glass coin that then you can sell for uh, an amount of money. So you're creating currency or you're selling art in a way. It's, it's art as currency. That's exactly it. I mean, we basically create art that looks like money and then we network it to act like money to draw attention to the idea that you don't need an outside authority to issue money so that the benefit is all and the control all goes to this like third party authority. I mean, they talk about the human race owes trillions of dollars. Like to who? You know, like the Federal Reserve? or something, or they owe money, it, it's, it's absolutely insane because that amounts to, you know, when you're talking trillions of dollars, it means lifetimes of slave labor mm -hmm. to cover those kinds of debts. And what's the value backing up any coin? In this case, it's art, it's hard work, but you right. gave me a dollar bill, that's a piece of paper that took two seconds to print and probably cost like one cent to make. Right, and it's issued on these terms that every time you use it, it costs you and every other person who creates value energy. You know, when, when inflation is a thing, when money is, when money is created by funding a loan based on fractional reserve lending, like, it's this backdoor scam to just, like, you know, if you're the banker and you can issue a bunch of money to duplicate uh, labor and then all of a sudden this issuement that you've made is worth just as much as the travel trailer that homie wants to buy but the travel trailer uses real material and real people's labor but this banking industry just like clones that off and issues this marker that matches it because sometimes it's not even paper it's just a numbers on a computer it's just num it's mostly the time it's just numbers on a computer and they don't even have it in the bank account at the bank because of fractional reserve lending. Mm -hmm. So they can loan 10 times as much as they have. So these, these loans actually create currency, but then when you pay the loan back, over half of the currency that's created ends up ownership of the banking cartel. Mm -hmm. And the person who get the travel trailer and the person who built the travel trailer have to split less than half of the total amount of economic growth created by making this thing happen and that's where if people can understand that we can issue credit to each other or better yet live in a state of abundance where if i come into contact with somebody who has need then i feel like what i have available is well purposed to fill that need of theirs and i understand that the reason I have that abundance is because other people have seen me and my needs and come and brought things. Right. And, and that's how this project works. Mm -hmm. That thing right there, we use it every day to tremendous effect. And my friend just saw us doing the project and called me up and said, 
I, you need this thing. It's kind of in my way. I didn't, it doesn't work for me, but I'm going to bring it up. And it just drove up here and came out of the side of a camper mm -hmm. and popped down on the floor and became like this beloved thing that cut, uh, I mean, we were, it's, it's much more difficult to use a torch and a diamond shear to section a cane off and you'd lose big chunks and we had a lot of heartbreak happening because of our technique there. This thing just eliminates so much of it and saves us time and all these things happen. I mean, the... So it's like a trade mentality, like a sacred economics as Charles Eisenstein would call it, you know? Like we share with each other what we can share and then we're all taken care of. Exactly. These ideas that I'm talk, touching on are basically what he talks about in his books, in sacred economics and stuff. And he's a huge, uh, Charles Eisenstein is a huge influence on me personally. And, you know, reading his essays and stuff is like, it's a, what a lot of this is based on. And, you know, when you're trying to actually put those principles into action, it becomes a much messier uh a much messier thing when you're experiencing the day-to-day -day emotions of struggling through a society that is like totally trying to block you from having an abundance mentality like it's it's difficult to overstate how many like things are being inserted into your experience on a daily basis to make you believe in scarcity which is the big fucking lie dude right. what you I've been across this country in a car a bunch of times now. There's, you can't tell me there isn't enough farmland or enough land for houses or anything to spread the people in the cities out that don't want to be in the cities and let the people in the country that want to be in the cities go to the... Dude, freedom of choice would just allow people to have that experience that they want. You know, like, one of the things that, like, uh, that has helped me find the mentality of embodying this project is uh, I love boats and going to a marina and you spend time at a marina you'll start to realize you've got all these amazing yachts that are actually kind of like degrading because they sit in these slips and maybe only go out once or twice a year and this has always bothered me since I was a kid. It's just like you look at these things and you just, when you're a kid, you're just like, why can't I go out on that boat? No one else is using it, mm -hmm. you know? And, uh, and that, um, the desire to see that come to fruition has like led me to thinking and thinking and thinking about it. And then Charles has articulated a lot about the sacred economy, about, you know, where your economic success or your likelihood of being supported with the best bits comes from the service that you do to the people around you because that's what attracts people around you to want to uplift you personally. Mm -hmm. And it's just a sort of a different way of causing economics, but I always see these, these boats and I'm like, God, it's such an opportunity for, uh, for people who are privileged enough to own these boats to share these experiences like these yachts should be taking kids out to like learn about the ocean and go fish and then these kids should be like leaving like artwork and cool little things on the boats so that when these when these owners come the one time a year that they come there's like a picture pictures of like classes that have like benefited and maybe there's some damage here and there on the boat that couldn't be perfectly fixed by the crew or whatever, but there's also like 
thank you letters from kids. And even better than that, there's human beings with like life-changing positive experiences going out, making the world a better place. And all they, they did nothing except allow their life to be enriched with all that energy. Well, that's a beautiful way of thinking, man. Sometimes it's hard to share your thing that's preciously yours, that fear that it could get damaged or tarnished. Uh, I myself sometimes are like, ooh, when I'm away from my apartment, I don't want anybody going in there and dirtying it up. But, you know, I, I see how, you know, something like a yacht that only gets like, you know, used once a year, if put in the right hands that oversees the project, then can benefit so many people and those resources. Exactly. Or a, a shop like this. I mean, that's what I was trying to explain earlier is I, I was able to have a prolific pipe making career and do really well. My work was well received and well valued. So I had extra time and energy and I was able to build a borosilicate hot shop. But without, without being able to share it and get people into it, it still was this, it was like that yacht and I could only bring it out once or twice a year and I would take it out to the DFO every year and use it to entertain people but it's like you know I mean it drinks like six gallons of propane an hour and a boatload of oxygen like it costs hundreds of dollars to turn the switch on mm -hmm. so you don't just do it and play with it and have fun unless there's some sort of reason and these these DFOs and then now this project and this desire to share the technology like has opened it up and I'm now getting so much more out of it. So, you know, in the beginning, I was much more concerned about my equipment and uh, people damaging and stuff. And as this project has gone on and as the studio has transitioned more and more to uh, the things that we're using have been created from the abundance that has been contributed forth by the community. You know, like this place operates according to sacred economics like we use what's given to us by the community and and that's really like what um you know what we're trying to put out there in the world is like if you do good work then people will want to support you like if uh if the county stopped maintaining these roads i guarantee the people who actually own the equipment that can fix the roads would just go out there and start fixing them and keeping them going once they got bad to a certain point and then all the people in the community that were like oh sweet there's no more potholes in the road would support those people whether it be use their businesses that they operate other than the roads or bring them eggs from their farm or just kick them down some money you know right. That's a very idealistic uh, vision of people being kind and then other be people being kind in response. And that's the whole idea of sacred economics. I recently had Charles as one of the uh, guests of this podcast and he was touching on these things and such a smart guy and great reflections about the state of the world right now. How, how do you see the world right now in this, uh, you know, second year of COVID we're in? Um, and all the pressures placed upon us. <laughs> I think that, uh, you know, in terms of the science, if you put a microscope on a dust bunny, it's actually really scary. Like a dust mite looks like it's an alien from space. And, you know, there's a lot of things going on in terms of this that don't have anything to do with health or biology. 
And uh, there's a lot of like mental energy being thrown around. And that's the most concerning part to me is, you know, the, I want to make choices that stop people from dividing along lines of vaccinated versus non-vaccinated and you're a bad person if you don't and a good person if you do or whatever, uh, whatever different perspectives people want to have that end in like canceling. Us versus them. Us versus them because there's the, the clear enemy is the person creating that mentality, you know, like the, the fear-based mentality, the pressure to the pressure to take a commercial product into your DNA, like, I mean, the product exists because of profit motive. There's no other reason for it. It doesn't, no, it's, it's, it exists for somebody to make money and to put that in your DNA is a totally, like, uh, personal choice, you know, like. Right. Um, so you're not really taking a stance. You don't care what other people do. You're doing what you feel is healthy for yourself and let other people be. But you also don't want people like judging you or definitely it's for me sad to see that I'm going to lose some friends that I dearly love just because of my stance. Well, or at least my personal decision. Yeah, I mean, my stance is against all of the pressure. So when people feel the need to polarize and uh, cancel culture people. It it just is such a huge turnoff, you know, like if you want to take the experimental product then take the experimental product if you don't want to take the experimental product don't even if it was a proven tested product like it's uh you know in the day-to-day life that i live i not only eat organic but i'm trying to completely verify by growing all of my own food and only consuming uh that which i create from the land with the with the family and the team and and that's like a you know, it's just completely opposed to the idea of uh, an experimental pharmaceutical Let's product. let the corporations take care of our health and dictate what's good or bad for each person. Right. It's and just, it's the whole humanity, not just like, you know, a couple people here. Right. And these are the same people that brought us the chemicals in our food supply that are making everyone sick. I mean... It's not unsettled science to look at glyphosate and different uh, effects of processed foods and all this stuff. Like, and then if you have kind of an engineering mind and you start to grasp like kind of how these things are happening, the the weird things that come in as lubrication and maintenance factors of the industrialized equipment that handle the food, put these little tiny amounts of really weird shit into your environment. And, you know, I mean, it's just a, it's a toxic world. We've engineered a toxic world and there has to be like a re, this is something I like to talk about. Um, the, absolute most important thing for humanity right now in my opinion is the redistribution of engineering okay and buckminster fuller has a beautiful quote uh about it he says uh we we need to change from building weaponry to building livingry (laughs) the technology all exists and he was saying that back in the 60s he's like listen you know peace on earth means abundance for everybody because the the engineering to make an aircraft carrier, one aircraft carrier, could undeniably clean all the plastic floating in the ocean off the surface. Right. 
uh, just the, the, a carrier task force is such a huge grouping of ships and capability and material and men. Uh, like, <laughs> just take one and find that carbon footprint and develop it to cleaning the ocean, and you're going to see just some amazing... I mean, they haven't even... I doubt they've thrown an aircraft carrier worth of engineering at the Fukushima disaster. This is how stingy these motherfuckers are with their engineering. They're like, we're the only ones that have the power. And it's just like, it's absolute garbage. You know, like, they're just, they're disconnecting people from their higher source. So, like, for me, I can engineer anything that I know the parameters of because I just ask the entire history of humanity how to fucking do it. I have access to the future, the present, and the past. So... <laughs> Tell me I can't do it? Yeah, go fuck yourself. You know, it's just, it's easy to do. We're going to figure it out. I hate to be so coarse, but I just get passionate No, about you got passion. Stuff. Are you an engineer yourself? I guess like you're building these machines, so you're not just an artist that creates glass. You're an engineer. And that's why you wish the, as you say, the distribution of engineers was used more for positive intent yeah. as opposed to keeping us uh, polluted. When I was in high school, I was at a college prep school with a good reputation, and I was actually uh, awarded a science and engineering award normally given to juniors in my sophomore year. Um, Congratulations. As a, so, and what actually ended up happening is I wanted to be in aerospace was, uh, was my whole thing, and I was, and at that time it wasn't, I was not really like, I had the idea of truth and justice, but I grew up on like G.I. Joe and shit. So the idea of like engineering weapon systems or something, that was not, that was something I was like, thought, not, you know, there was a period of my life where that was what I was going to do. And I was like walking home from school and middle school designing drone warfare systems and stuff, well, you know, like uh, this was. You know, and, and again, it goes back to that connection I was talking about, is when you establish that connection and open that up, you can like, you know, so as a kid, you open that connection and you, you see the movie, you know, and you see these devices like murdering and pillaging and everything, but it just looks like a movie. And so you could like actually still envision being a participant in that. And then you, as you mature, and maybe you like encounter more substances and things, and it like you get a deeper perspective. So as a more mature person, you can ask deeper questions like, how do those machines work? And what is the underlying technology? And maybe, maybe even get to a next generation energy technology or something by, by studying those visions. Um, but what happened for me is as I, as I matured, I started to see the human side and the animal side and the the like biology and how anti-spirit and anti-biology the weapon systems are and that got to be you know as an engineer and kind of an engineering mind and understanding how it all works like aerospace becomes a non-starter field at that point like if you're about peace and love you really shouldn't work in aero I mean like it I had a conversation with myself, like one of the, you know, when I started tripping and smoking, and I was like, well, what happens 
you know, you know, what if you build a spaceship? What if you build a starship? Like, I believe in myself to a degree that most people don't. So, you know, I don't, I'm not going to go into aerospace and just, like, work at a desk doing somebody else's fucking compressor blade. I'm going to, like, run the fucking project. And, you know, and the thing is, it's like, if you're going to do a... If you're going to be the engineer in charge, uh, or if you're going to, if you learn how to make a turbofan engine that goes twice as far on the same amount of fuel, you didn't save the world. You didn't even make airfare cheaper. You made cruise missiles go farther. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and they've been doing this for fucking decades of just like taking the best and the brightest and giving people the opportunity to work with the best tools and this crazy technological stuff, but then everything good gets turned into aircraft carriers and cruise missiles and drones that are designed to hurt people and, and just this like crazy, you know, DARPA reality where, you know. So it's not like you're against technology per se. You, you, you are a technological person. You just feel like that our focus is misdirected on technology. Yeah, I think that there need to be like ethics courses for engineers as like mandatory shit. Because uh, when you become an engineer, you start to have power to influence the earth in ways that can actually like harm the planetary organism. And if you're not giving people ethics classes to represent in the mind of every engineer working with those technologies, the right and responsibility and purpose of every other human being on the planet. I mean, there's seven billion of us and we're allowing a very small group of people to like drive spikes into our mother's heart and fucking do these crazy procedures to ourselves, to the people, to, to, to the fabric of society. I mean, they literally, in the last couple of years, they made your health my responsibility for the first time in, I don't, in my fucking life. You know, I mean, that's such a huge, just sudden, like, swerving change from the top down. Like, you, we should be very, we should be very observant of what's going on around us, right? It's now. very psychological. Yes. You know, you're going to kill people by the way you decide how to run your health. Yes. I mean, that is such a fucking mind fuck that has all these gateways that involve you being afraid or guilty or some sort of like lower vibration. And if you look into where does that thought process lead to a high vibration mentality, it's like, I can't find that door, you know? And that's what, that's where I find the, the discernment really starts to happen is if you identify what a high vibration is, and then when mainstream gives you all the choices, there's no door that leads to a high vibration. So like, that's, sleight of hand that's fucking house of mirrors shit you know oh look look at all this choice you have you can be unhappy like this you can be unhappy like that look at all these celebrities like most of the celebrities don't look fucking happy to me they got the haunted eyes you know the running eyes the fucking vacant eyes you know there's not a lot of like bright engaging you know there's a few who've exited the matrix but then they're demonized or made fun of for thinking different and spreading their own truth. Yeah. Uh, luckily, we're not as famous as them, so we can talk and have an honest conversation to whoever listens to this. Um, yeah. So there's a lot of, you know, bumps on the road in our 
current human journey, but do you have some optimism for the future? You think we can get out of this uh, conundrum? Oh, dude, I honestly, in my core, I think I'm one of the most optimistic people you'll meet. It's like, it's like I have full belief that the systems we're building can replace the systems that we're using. And that's where my belief in technology and, you know, most of the people claiming to believe in science wouldn't know science if it slapped them across the face because science doesn't fucking believe. There is no faith in science. And I'm exercising the scientific method. And if you can't explain the data to me in a way that it makes sense, then I don't accept the data. That's the scientific method. And, and so, like, the fact that my science is coming up with a different answer than somebody else's science doesn't mean I don't believe in science. It just means I'm actually being a scientist and being creative with the use of this thought form. Challenging the theory and asking for more evidence. Asking for more evidence, incorporating more evidence, observing data points. I yeah, mean, more discussion, really, because all this censorship of like one side of the discussion, like a bunch of like thousands and even millions of scientists have a different opinion, a lot of things. And they're like, no, 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 no. We're only going to listen to these ones that go along our narrative. Yeah, it's crazy. crazy. Yeah. Tricky world, but I'm still, you know, as you, optimistic that something's got to give and we're going to hit some wall where we're going to actually, more people going to question the, the situation we're in and really observe if it was truth or if truth was actually behind some kind of curtain. My advice for everybody in terms of this issue is that, at, you know, because of the psychology of human beings, if you tell them their government is fucked, their money is fucked. It's just a no-starter. I mean, even if you take it to a personal level, if somebody has a toxic partner and you just walk up to them and you're like, hey, bro, I just want to let you know your, your girlfriend's toxic as fuck, and, you know, you're going to get punched in the face, bro. Yeah. You know? So... You take it personal. You take it personally. So the way to, the way to help people have the... Uh, the bravery to start to develop free thought for themselves is to make it look good. You know, oh, come on out here and oh, look at this food I just grew from my yard. And oh, why don't you stay here for a week? And now that you've eaten fresh, nutrient-dense food for a week, notice how your body feels. Mm -hmm. And these are just positive things that we're doing. That Live by example. Exactly. And, and maybe not even, that's almost even strong for for it, just make it look good, you know, like, mm. and give people like, because a lot of people desire, like, especially, you know, one of the things I've noticed, especially the people that are like, in a strong position to help, like, as an abundance, in an abundance economy, if you have already generated an abundance, you know, you think about somebody calling for an abundance economy totally different than somebody who's experiencing scarcity and feels like they want more abundance in their life. And so, how do you represent to somebody who's perfectly capable of creating abundance for themselves, even within scarcity, that they're going to have more abundance and a better life if they actually share that abundance and have faith that there will be, you know, but most people just see, I'm going to take this resource and I'm going to give it to this guy who doesn't have it, and then I'm not going to have it, and that's the end of the cycle for them. They're not, it takes a lot to have faith that that, 
feeling of positivity from helping that person will actually carry them into generating either by themselves or with the help of the energy that they've put out of generosity more abundance yeah karma karma yeah and so much of karma is how it makes you feel like if i give you something awesome and you're super stoked on it that's going to make me feel good right so when i feel good that makes me better at everything that I do, mm-hmm. which makes me set myself up for more success. And then so I think, oh, I'm getting good karma. But actually, right. like the universe doesn't have to give me anything back. Right. It's just like I helped my friend and it made you happy. And because human beings like transmit and receive the way that you d- we do, you your happiness spread to me and not just me, but everyone else that you're that your persona can touch in that moment when you're feeling happiness from the thing that I gave you, which could be a lot. Well, I, I just go back to the example that we're living right now. I, at the beginning when I learned about your coin, I hit you up, it's like, hey, can you make me a coin? Do you want to collaborate with me? And you're like, come and hang out with me for like at least a week. And I was like, whoa, that's a lot of my time. Like, I don't know if I, this is like, you know, I make money with my time's cost, you know? And so I had to come here and meet you and be like, oh, shit, like this is an operation with tons of people working, creating all these little details that then are shrunk into more details, more than just like, you know, printing on a computer and here's a coin. It's like it's like a it's like a vibe. And and I was like, "Okay, cool. I got to honor that with my presence, with my guidance, with my with my my own vibe. But also, you know, painting this mural as a, my own offering and offering my vibe onto your community. So every time that you walk to your home to grab something, you're just like, oh, fuck, yeah, look at that. You know, and you're stuck. It's like, I'm going to fucking kill this coin now. And then we both create beautiful art that enrich our lives, makes us happier. And that vibe keeps on spreading to other people, whoever walks by your, your garage, whoever holds this coin in their life. So we're just multiplicating our creative good vibes in a way. And the more we're generous with each other, the more that makes it easy to feel those good vibes. And then they resonate into the future from the present moment. It's awesome. Yeah. Well, I'm very stoked to be here. I'm excited to finish this mural this afternoon and do a great job for you to enjoy for years to come. Thank you once again for, for having me over and for being a guest on my show. Would you have some final words of wisdom for our millions and millions of viewers watching us all over the world? <laughs> final words of wisdom. You've, you've given us a lot of wisdom and great points of views on a number of things. Maybe just like young glass artists who might be watching this. Uh, what do you recommend them on their journey? You know, just any... Any glass artist or visionary artist, whatever you want, I mean, you, re- you really have to like fix a future goal of how you want to see yourself existing in the future and then walk back from that backwards and like embody that fully and try and feel the texture of it and then step back through it in small attainable steps until you get back to where you are. Mm-hmm. And then look back the other way and that's when it's this is the part that's really difficult is like the backwards gives you sort of a really wide road map but then when you're back to where you were you kind of have to like most of the good stuff starts off with a plan so it's like you got to pull that fucking piece of paper off the notebook and draw the 
the schematic of the, for me it almost always starts with a piece of equipment. I'm like, I want to make this piece of artwork and it almost always has not able to be done with this or that. So I like design a thing and then I build the thing and then so it starts with this plan to build a, a machine or something or whatever. But any business, anything, anywhere you want to see yourself doing something that other people aren't doing, you have to like start with what everyone has access to, you know, and that's essentially a piece of graph paper and a pencil and then you start to build a blueprint for your first step and then you execute it and then you go for the next and the next and the next and then you just string that shit together mm -hmm. one and step at a time yeah follow your to-do list i mean it would work to learn how to do really any craft you know you just isolate a basic skill learn how to do it well add a new skill to it learn how to do both of those well learn how to make pieces that use both skills then add another add another you mm -hmm. know um, like batman and his yeah. tool belt full of weapons of creation <laughs> right but so at some point batman was just some like spoiled rich dude that wanted to like do better for gotham city and you know he had to like get down with the butler and they had to like have this moment where they decided that they were going to go vigilante justice mm -hmm. and and then dude had to like confess to uh whatever batman's real name is, is bruce wayne bruce wayne so so uh and what's the butler's name alfred alfred so alfred has to confess to bruce wayne that he's actually like a crazy uh cia engineer or something in his day job <laughs> Oh yeah, like well, because he isn't he the one who like creates all the. Uh, I think they got toys. they got Morgan Freeman. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> right. The so they got the other guy. So so they must have all like sat down at some point. You got the yeah. you got the engineer, you got the. But he was the, the organizer. He must have helped him like a shitload as a kid, especially. It's like okay, I gotta maybe send you to Asia to train you as a ninja. Well, I'm gonna build you your back cave. But yeah, it requires, it takes a community to create a Batman. It's not just yeah. one person. So is Alfred the mastermind or is Bruce Wayne the mastermind? Because Alfred was responsible for Bruce Wayne's education. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, now I'm thinking that the real fucking... The uh, real Batman's Alfred. Alfred. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Because he can replace, he can actually replace Bruce Wayne. Well, I don't know if he's got the same ninja kicks. But uh, I think the point of what you're saying is that we also have to have this like drive and intention to be the superheroes of our own stories. Yeah. Like, and, I, mm. and you have to take the steps, the first steps, mm -hmm. like we're saying. They had to sit down, decide to do it, and then like how awkward was that first first fucking thing the guys like the, the engineers dude is like that here's us some armor so you could probably beat mm -hmm. up anybody you find and you the know, first they... 70s suit and the, and the bat dance they had to go through that in order to get to <laughs> the baddest dark knight shit <laughs> well thank you so much myself it's such a great bat uh, uh let's do this without killing our microphone Blessings. That was such a great talk. And thank you so much for you guys for listening. Please make sure to press the like button, subscribe, comment, share, and give this humble show a little bit more momentum. I'll see you next time. Blessings.
today I got the special guest, Mr. Banjo. What you saw, that is like the heartbeat right there.、Mm -hmm. Like those are very events, you know.、Uh, this is speaking from Papa status, you know. Looking down at it now, because that's that has been the last five, six, eight years, you know. Like those events are the heartbeat. They're just like that's ground central. That's like that's the center that holds much of the scene together. Is those experiences of people bringing their art, putting it on the table, loving each other's art, sharing、mm -hmm. each other's art, passing it. You know, just the effect of passing it and、mm -hmm. being of one breath. You know, like it's beautiful. So make sure to subscribe, like, and everything else. Big thanks, and see you next week. Peace.